Well, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning that you are the God of life, and we thank you that Jesus Christ is risen. We thank you that even now he is alive, that he sits at the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms, and we thank you that as we just sang in that song, he's coming back someday. And so, Lord, in this interim time between your first and second comings, we thank you that your life is in us. We thank you that your spirit is in us. We thank you that you work in our lives today in real ways. And God, as we come to the Word this morning, we pray that you might speak through the Bible. We thank you that we have the Bible, which is the Word of God, not just an inspiring book, but the inspired book. We thank you that in these dark times of doubt, of insecurity in our nation, of economic uncertainty, we thank you that there is a light that shines undiluted, and it's the Bible. And so we come to your word this morning, God, asking that you might speak to our hearts. We don't desire simply to go through a religious service because it's Easter, but we want to meet with you, God, and hear your voice. So we pray that now as we come to your word, you might open our eyes to see the risen Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there just uh, some people who are lost causes? Are there some people who are just... Uh, so far out there and so far gone. There's nothing you can really do for them except just try to be nice to them and help them stagger through this life. Are, are there some people who are beyond the reach of help? I ask question because I have a friend who kind of fits in that category, possibly. It's a guy I went to high school with. Uh, an amazingly talented fellow. This guy is an artist and especially a cartoonist. He draws cartoons. And, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that the things he was drawing in high school could easily have been a Disney animated film frame. It was just that amazing. Uh, and coupled with his artistic ability, he had this sort of comedic wit that reminded me very much of uh, Robin Williams or Jonathan Winters. The, the guy could just do voices and personalities and characters and you know, have a conversation with himself, you know, but in a good way. Um, <laughs> it, it was hysterical. He would just go on and he'd just do these, and you'd just sit there and just laugh and watch this guy. And then he would put it together and he would develop these comic strips. And around the time uh, when I was in high school is when the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were big and pop. I'm dating myself now. Uh, they were popular then. And, and this guy had a comic strip he was developing that was way better. I mean, he would just give me, we'd sit in French class and not pay attention, and he'd, uh, he'd pass me little comic strips and I'd read this stuff. I was laughing, it was brilliant. He's this amazingly talented guy, but juxtaposed to his talent was a, a, a terribly troubled home. Uh, to, I'd say that his home was toxic. That's the best way I could describe it. Alcoholism in his home, verbal abuse, constantly, constantly criticized, especially by his mother. I walked into his home a couple times, and uh, thankfully that's all I ever was there. And I would go into his home, and it was like there was this oppressive cloud in the house. It was just this negative, dark place, it seemed. And he was always trying to get out, 
and always trying to come over to my house because it was more normal. Anyway, I wouldn't say it's normal, but it was uh, more normal than, than his home. And uh, I would, you know, we, we hung out together, we clicked. I was a, a very, very, very amateur cartoonist, and so we'd cartoon back and forth. And, and it, we just it sort of enjoyed a rapport that, that I guess God gave us. I tried to tell him about Jesus. I tried to tell him about God's love for him. And, and you know, he's getting all these negative things from home. And so when I'm saying God loves you, it, it didn't really click with him at the time. I gave him a Bible, which I guess he still has today. Well, after high school, we went our separate ways, and he had the potential to go and become an amazing illustrator. But instead, uh, he, was, he succumbed to all of that stuff he grew up with, and he just went in a negative direction. Um, he never really held down a job, odd job here, odd job there, living with different women, these broken, temporary kind of relationships, uh, he struggled with alcohol. He had this volcanic temper where he would just get angry and he'd you know, be one of these guys who'd punch a hole in a wall or take his car out and drive it into a phone pole and survive. But he'd just be he'd just so angry. He's one of these kinds of people. He was homeless for about six months. Didn't hear from him. I said, where you been? He said, I've been in the woods. Okay. And, and, and he's this kind of person who, I don't know if you have any friends like this, but every six months to a year, he'd give you a call out of the blue. And, and they're on the phone saying, hey, how you doing? And usually it's like midnight, and the phone rings. My wife and I grab the phone because we, well, we think it might be you, you know, calling with a real problem, you know, like someone's in the hospital. So we pick it up, hello, and hey, Jeremy. And it's like, oh, you know, <laughs> this is going to be an hour conversation, and it's going to be me listening and him talking about all his woes. You know, and you got, I have this friend. What do I do with a guy like that? What can you do? You listen... You'd be nice. But isn't he just a lost cause? Isn't it just hopeless? I mean, I have, I've come to the realization very quickly in this friendship that there's nothing I can do to rescue this guy. There's nothing I can do. I just can't, especially not long distance, uh, especially not when he calls collect. There's nothing I can do to rescue him. <laughs> well, this morning we are gathered together to celebrate the fact that God can do anything. That where our abilities come to a screeching halt, which is, doesn't happen too long, we, we immediately reach the end of our limits, God is just beginning. That God can do anything. That His power is unmatched. That from God's perspective, there's no such thing as a lost cause or a hopeless situation. Because God is God and He can do anything anything. That's what our text is about. We just read from Ephesians chapter 3. Look back there. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory. Uh, Chapter 3 verses 20 to 21 are what we call a doxology. A doxology is a spontaneous eruption of praise to God for something in his character. It comes from the Greek word uh, doxa, which means glory. And so it's a spontaneous giving of glory to God. And if you read Paul's letters, you'll find doxologies sprinkled throughout. Paul will just get going talking about God, and suddenly he'll just shoot into one of these doxologies. So this is one of these spontaneous Pauline moments where the Apostle Paul praises God. Verse 21, to him be the glory. And what is it that he's praising God for? God's ability to do Anything. God can do anything. Look at the the phrases. To him who is able, 
to do immeasurably more. That's a wonderful little Greek word that means like infinitely above whatever it is you can think of. It's bigger than that. Infinitely more than all we can ask or imagine. So uh, verse 20 is a little bit redundant. It's as if Paul is heaping up or just piling up different things. He, you know, immeasurably more. He's able to do all. It, he piles up all these phrases to sort of overwhelm us with the sense of God's amazing ability to do anything, to do anything. Our God can do anything. He says he's able to do immeasurably more. And then I love this. More than all we can ask or imagine. That's, that's pretty cool. Like, think what you would ask God for if you could ask God for anything. Imagine if an angel appeared to you and said, God says you can have one request, anything you want, what do you want? What, what would you ask for? Um, I'm assuming there'd be some limits and stipulations on that. But, uh, uh, you know, what would you ask for, though? If, if, if you could dream the biggest dream, well, whatever it is you could ask for would be like nothing to God. It'd be like going to Mozart and saying, excuse me, sir, do you think you could play chopsticks on the piano? You know, like, yeah, I can play chopsticks on the piano. In fact, watch this, because God can do anything. Or notice, uh, not only it's all that we can ask, I love that, or even imagine. I don't know, I can imagine quite a bit. Uh, I can imagine uh, God doing great things. Take all of the requests of God, I mean of, of God's people down through the ages, take all of their dreams, take all of their imaginations, take everything that God's people have hoped for and dreamed for down through the ages, and bring it all together, and it would take less than a drop of power from God's ocean of power to accomplish all of those things. It's nothing to him. He can do immeasurably more than anything we could even dream of. God can do it because God is able. And uh, you know, I'm surprised that I, I always forget this and that I, I'm always surprised when God actually answers my prayers. It's like when Mary was visited by the angel. The angel came to her and said, Mary... You're going to have a child. You're going to name him Jesus. He's going to be the Savior. And Mary says, how are you going to do this? Because, you know, I'm, I'm a virgin. And the angel says, Mary, nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1.37. God can do anything, Mary. People say, you know, that's why I struggle with the Bible, because you have all these miracles in it. And, you know, I, I have a hard time believing in miracles. There's no scientific proof for miracles. Uh, well, yeah, that's the point. A miracle is when God does something that he usually doesn't do. People say, well, I can't believe it. You, you know, you can't prove it to me. Uh, well, I mean, if you assume there's no God, then of course miracles seem ridiculous. But if there is a God, miracles is like, well, what's the big deal? If God wants to, he can do whatever he wants. And so I, that's my definition of a miracle. A miracle is when God does something by his power that he usually just doesn't do. And we're surprised because we don't see it all the time. We go, it's a miracle. And God's like, hey, I'm just using my power. I use my power to keep your molecules together this morning. I use my power to keep gravity working. And now I use my power to part the Red Sea. I mean, you know, from God's perspective, it's just him using his power however he chooses to in different ways. And so God can do anything. He, he puts Christ into the womb of a virgin. And he still is doing miracles today. And I'm always surprised when he does it, it seems. I was uh, talking, I asked, I asked this person if I could share this story. I, I was talking to someone in our church about three weeks ago, and, and this person was saying how they had a real financial need. They were in a temporary housing situation, and that housing situation was about to come to an end. And they needed some place to live, and they needed some 
some income just to provide for living expenses. And it was a, kind of a desperate situation. And so, you know, we, we prayed. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not a real estate agent. I'm not a job placement person, but I can pray. And so we, we got together and we prayed, you know, Lord, uh, provide for this person. You, you've said in your word that if we will seek your kingdom first, you'll give us all of our material needs. So we just claimed that promise. And we prayed that prayer and said, Amen. I went home. Two hours after that prayer, the person calls me. You're not going to believe it. I got a place. And I was like, Really? Yeah, it's an incredible place, and all, all expenses are taken care of. It's a live-in, work kind of situation. All of my needs are totally covered, and in fact, the place where I'm going to be staying is a mansion overlooking the water. I've never lived in a place like this. It, it's incredible. It's, you know, it's palatial. It's amazing. And, and then a couple weeks later, I was talking to the person. I called this person back and said, can I use your story on Easter morning? And, and the person said, yeah, then started going on and on about the place. And the person said, this place is more than I could have ever imagined ever imagined that's the way god works and and then i hear the story and i'm like wow that's amazing god answered my prayer and god's going like why are you still amazed i can do anything and then when he answers my prayer i'm like wow come on god can do anything but the most amazing demonstration of the power of god ever is the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead In the resurrection, God definitively proves that he can indeed do anything. At the resurrection, God flexes his omnipotent muscles in such a way that there is no longer a doubt that he can do whatever he wants. And the reason I say that is because at the resurrection, God has overcome the most hopeless, impossible situation ever, which is death. I mean, that's it, death. Death is it. I talked about my hopeless friend who calls me in the middle of the night. Well, at least he's still alive. At least there's some hope for him, a little bit of hope, it seems. But when you're dead, you're dead, and that's it. There's, there's no more hope. It's over. But Christ, at the resurrection, overcame the most impossible situation. He, he conquered death. Death is hopeless. Doctors can do amazing things today, but they can't conquer death. Our uh, youth pastor, Rich Chamberlain, recently had his hip replaced. It's an amazing medical miracle from my standpoint. I'm amazed at how they do it. Uh, He's in his mid-40s, has a degenerative sort of hip thing in in his uh, tendons, and and so they had to replace his hip joint. And basically what they do is, it's kind of gruesome, but they, they cut your leg open, they chop off your femur, just chop it right off, screw a post in, stick a new end of your femur on, a, a metal femur, and then they take this cup that's going to be the new socket. It's smooth on the inside where the, the ball goes. And on the back, it has like kind of a rough cheese gratery kind of substance. And they kind of clean out your hip joint and your pelvis and grind this thing in so that, so that the bone grows around it and holds onto it. And they pop it back in. And six weeks later, you're on a cane walking around. It's amazing. They just, it's amazing, isn't it? I know. Everyone's like, <laughs> where's the air sickness bag? Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's a miracle. Well, so now at Sasha Baptist Church, we like to brag that we have a new hip youth pastor. That's right. Yes. <laughs> but even with all that technology, <laughs> I wish I could claim credit for that. Uh, <laughs> Even with all of our technology, though, 
We're not one inch closer to solving the death problem. Human mortality still is practically at 100%. I say practically at 100% because technically human mortality is at 99.9999999999% because there was one man who has defeated death and his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ hung on a cross for sins and crimes he never committed and he was laid in a tomb that did not belong to him and he rose from a death that he will never have to face again. Christ is alive. He's alive. And he's risen. My friends, this is the very heart of the Christian message. You have to understand this. At the very core of Christianity is a demonstration of God's power in the resurrection. You take away the resurrection, you don't have Christianity anymore. And, and you know, some people think, well, the resurrection, I mean, that's sort of a, a fanciful belief that probably what happened was Jesus, there was some guy named Jesus, and then certain legends developed about him, and maybe three, four, or five hundred years after his death, people began to believe he rose again. And, and that's probably how it happened. But I'm telling you, scholars of all persuasions, both liberal to conservative, the whole spectrum, affirm that the resurrection, the teaching about the resurrection, goes back to the earliest strata of Christian tradition. It goes back to the earliest strata. Now, whether or not, you know, what you do with that is your own choice. But people affirm that, yes, the earliest writings that we have, the earliest information we have show that Christians proclaimed from the very get-go, he is risen. That was their message. So 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem, the very city where it all went down, among the very people who all saw it take place, the apostles stand up and say, he is risen. And what happens? People said, oh, you guys are out of your minds. No. Thousands convert. Now, how does that work out? Let me suggest a solution. Perhaps it's because those people can hear the message, he is risen, and then go over and look in the tomb. And say, oh, you're right. Where is he? He's risen. Look at these disciples. Their lives are changed. There's an amazing thing going on. And the risen Christ was alive and working. And since then, God's kingdom has advanced throughout the world. He is alive. During the French Revolution, someone came to Bishop Talleyrand, and they said to him, uh, Bishop, I don't understand Christianity. What kind of religion is this? Anybody could invent a religion like Christianity. And Bishop Talleyrand said, yeah, you're right, anyone could. All they'd have to do would be to be crucified, buried, and then rise on the third day. And then you could invent Christianity. That's all it would take. Because at the core of the Christian message, at the core of the gospel, is a demonstration of God's power in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing demonstration of his power. The pyramids in Egypt are famous because they hold the bodies of Pharaoh. Westminster Abbey in England is famous because there are buried the notables of English history. Arlington National Cemetery is famous because there are men and women who've served our country and lost their lives are buried. But the garden tomb in Jerusalem is famous because it's empty. It's empty. He is alive. He is risen. And now, if this all isn't mind-boggling enough, I want to read one more thing from our verse. It's just the coup de grace. It's amazing. It blows my mind. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, get this, 
according to his power that is at work within us. It's like, did I read that right? Let me read that again. Within us. The great power that raised Christ from the dead is working in me? Whoa, 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 whoa. That's amazing. But isn't that what Paul has already taught us? Look back at Ephesians chapter 1. Flip back one page. Ephesians chapter 1. Maybe it's 2 in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul's already talked about this. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul's praying, God, help these Christians understand what you've given them. Help them understand the hope they have. Help them understand that they're your treasured possession. Help them understand the power that belongs to them. He's not praying that they would have hope, but he's saying pray that they understand the hope that they already possess in Christ. And then when he, talks, when he says the word power, that triggers something in Paul's mind, and he writes at the end of verse 19, that power that's in us, that's available to us, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So that the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, in some way that I can't understand, is working inside of me. And so I think this is something critical that we grasp here. This is a definition of Christianity, the Christian faith. What is Christianity? It is nothing less than a living relationship with the risen Christ such that his power is in my life changing me from the inside out. That's Christianity. Anything less than that is not Christianity. It's a living relationship with the risen Christ such that his power is changing me from the inside out into a different person. Uh, sometimes we define Christianity culturally or institutionally. We think of Christianity as a, a church or a structure or an organization. Or certain people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian because, well, I'm not, um, I'm not a Hindu and I don't practice Taoism and I'm an American, so I, I suppose I'm a Christian. And then I went to church growing up and uh, I try to be a decent person, so I, I guess that's what Christianity is. So, yeah, I'm a Christian, I, I suppose, by default. I try to keep the Ten Commandments. You know, whatever they are, I kind of forget. But anyway, I try to keep them, and I try to be a nice person. And, and hey, that's great. I'm glad people go to church. I'm glad people try to be nice. But Christianity is not just moralism. It's a living relationship with the risen Christ such that his power is inside of me, changing the kind of person I am from the inside out. It's an amazing miracle. There was uh, once uh, the great preacher and writer, Harry Ironsides, Dr. Harry Ironsides. And Ironsides was about to speak to a, a group of people. And right before he began to speak, a man handed him a piece of paper. The man was Arthur Lewis, who was at the time a noted agnostic debater and lecturer. And he handed a piece of paper to Dr. Ironsides and said, Dr. Ironsides, I challenge you to a, a debate, Christianity versus agnosticism. And uh, I'll pay all the expenses. And Ironsides read it. And he says to the whole group, he reads the note to the group, and he says, I will go to this debate, but here are my conditions. Mr. Lewis, you must bring to the, to the debate one woman who has led a, a wicked, promiscuous, self-destructive life, but who came to the teachings of agnosticism 
with its skepticism about God and skepticism about the Bible, and as a result of agnosticism, has become a chaste, strong, noble woman of character. Furthermore, you must bring to this debate one man who was a drunk, one man who was a terrible father and terrible husband, who neglected his family, who gambled away his money, and, and who came to the teachings of agnosticism, and as a result, has become an upstanding pillar in his community. And if you will bring those two men to the debate, I will bring 100 men and 100 women who have been changed because of an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Arthur Lewis left the building. Because Christianity is unparalleled. It's not just a bunch of philosophy and theology, although it has philosophy and theology. I love to talk about that stuff. This is kind of why I went to school. I like to dig into that. But, but that's not all Christianity is. If you just have the philosophy and the theology and the Ten Commandments, you don't have it. Christianity is all of that stuff lived out in a real relationship with Jesus Christ that changes your life and transforms you. I'm going to tell you, friends, about a year ago, maybe it was nine months, I wish I had the email so I could check the exact date. I got an email from my hopeless friend. He wrote to me, he said, Jeremy, you're not going to believe this. I'm going to church. I've been baptized. I'm reading the Bible, and I know that God loves me. I've put my faith in Jesus, and I'm a different person. I, I can't believe it. I'm changed. I'm filled with love. I, 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 everything's different, he wrote in this email. And I'm just like, ah! <laughs> this has got to be a joke. Now, here's me again. I'm surprised when God does it. I'm like, wow, I can't believe that. Like, God's like, Pah. You work for me. You should know I do this stuff. You know? <laughs> this is what I do, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> God can do anything. He can do anything. If any person, no matter who they are, will come to Jesus Christ and put their faith in Him as Savior and Lord, you will be forgiven, restored, and God's Holy Spirit will come into your life and you will go on the roller coaster ride of your life as God takes a hold of you and just takes you on a trip and turns you into a different person. Being a, excuse me, being a Christian is the greatest adventure anyone can know because it's a living relationship with the living Christ. That's what it is. Through faith in Him.